This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Um, so I think what I'll do is, is talk for maybe 30 to 40 minutes uh, and then leave room for questions. Um, I want to talk about two parts of this. Uh, one is the, the process itself, which I think was quite interesting, um, and then talk about the substance of some of the particular recommendations um, of the group that received a good deal of public attention and to talk a bit about the president's um, response to those recommendations um, in his speech uh, in which he addressed the, the issues. So we go back to mid-August, and I was sitting in my office working on a book, minding my own business when I get a phone call from the White House, um, telling me that the president's appointing this review group um, and asking if I would be willing to, um, to serve on it. And I have to admit, my initial, in my own head, response was, oh, shit. <laughs> um, I have too many things to do right now. I am much too busy. Um, I'm really into what I'm working on at the moment. Um, and these kinds of groups basically write reports, they disappear in somebody's desk, and they never get heard from again. And this sounds like it's going to be uh, really time-consuming. Um, and so I was told, but nonetheless, you can't say no when the president asked. So I said, sure, happy to do it. But my, my, my ace in the hole was that I knew I had to get a top-secret clearance. And I figured there was more than enough in my background that would prevent that from happening. <laughs> <laughs> and when, um, when the investigator... Uh, a couple of days later, came by, I, I gleefully told her about the fact that, that several months earlier, um, my brother, who was then suffering from cancer, he's fine now, um, and who lives in Maine, uh, I went and visited him, and he had this medical marijuana. Uh, and we decided, what the hell, you know? He's got <laughs> cancer. I'm not going to say no. Um, and so I told her this, you know, sure, she would say, oh, well, I'm sorry, that's not going to work. That was unlawful, if it was. Um, and she just sort of sniffed at it, didn't, no big deal. Um, apparently, as long as you're willing to tell them what you've done wrong, it doesn't matter what you've done wrong. Uh, in any event, so somewhat to my dismay, I found myself with the top secret security clearance and was hustled off to Washington for a meeting um, in the, the Situation Room in the White House with the President and Susan Rice, the National Security Advisor, and several other uh, people, um, two of whom, by the way, are graduates of the law school, former students of mine. Uh, Lisa Monaco, who's the legal advisor for national security, and Jim Comey, who's the um, director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, so first of all, let me talk a bit about the five people on the group. Uh, so what the president told us in this first meeting was that I want an independent group, underscore independent, to advise me about how to think about these programs um, in a way that will help restore the public trust and make sure that we strike a proper balance between protecting the national security and the need to preserve interest in privacy and civil liberties. And the group was extremely well constituted, as it turned out, for that purpose. Um, of the five of us, um, one of them uh, was Michael Morell, who was a lifetime uh, careerist at the CIA, uh, he had been deputy director of the CIA for many years and twice had served as acting director of the CIA, had just recently stepped down uh, from his position as acting director of the CIA uh, and was not, therefore, particularly thrilled to get the phone call saying, you just stepped down, now I want you to do this for free. Um, second member was Richard Clark. Um, Clark was a member of the National Security Council. Um, he served in both the State Department and the Defense Department. Um, well-known in, in the world of technology and national security, uh, ex extensive government service. Um, third was uh, Peter Swire. Uh, Peter is a professor of Georgia, Georgia Tech. Um, he served as the head of the Pre uh, President Clinton's Office of Privacy and Information Technology um, and then served more recently in the Obama White House on privacy issues. And the fourth was my former colleague here, Cass Sunstein, um, who recently stepped down from a position in the Office of Management Budget um, to return to Harvard uh, to do teaching. And so th that was the five of us. And it was an extremely diverse group in terms of our backgrounds, our values, our experiences, our predilections as we approached these questions. Uh, we came from, from very different assumptions 
about how to think about these, these issues. I'm someone who's been on the National Advisory Council of the ACLU and National Chair of the Board of ACS, and Mike Morell, deeply embedded in the CIA for all these years. It was quite clear there was nothing we were going to agree upon. Um, so in our first meeting as a group, after we left the White House um, and were charged by the president and spent an hour talking with him and the others in the room about these issues, um, we went back to our SCIF, a secure facility, um, in a building owned by the Director of National Intelligence. Um, and to get into the SCIF, you have to have this special badge, which to my great regret, um, as we were leaving the president's speech, got taken away from me. Um, I I'd wanted to have that as a souvenir, and it turned out you can't keep top secret badges. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so you could only get into this SCIF, which was a basically small set of offices um, in this secure facility. Uh, and we had um, the five of us and nine staff persons who were uh, charged full-time to assist us in our work. And they were individuals who worked for the various agencies, NSA, CIA, FBI, uh, ODNI, Director of National Intelligence, and so on, who were basically tasked um, to, to be our assistants during the course of this. Um, and they were great. I have to say, they were there from 7 in the morning till 10 at night, um, and they worked endlessly to, to set up the briefings and find materials and and help us gather what we needed to do our work. Um, so at our first meeting, we sat down, and there were two questions that we addressed. One is, should we have a chair? And Richard Clark immediately said, no, we don't have a chair. There's only five of us. That was a great idea, as it turned out. Uh, and the second thing we talked about is, well, what are we going to do when we get to the points down the road that we have to write this report, and we're going to disagree about things? Should we have dissenting opinions, separate reports by, written by different, different, different individuals explaining their own views where we disagreed? Um, should we simply note that the, well, the majority takes this view, but it's not unanimous, without having dissenting uh, reports? Um, and we eventually decided, okay, we don't need to decide this. We'll worry about it later. Let's first learn something. Um, and what was fascinating about this experience, and to me, at a personal level, one of the most gratifying uh, aspects of it, is that he took these five individuals, and the way Susan Rice put it, five highly egotistical, high-testosterone white guys, throw them in a room together, tell them no one's in charge, and expect them to solve problems. Um, and, and, and what happened is exactly that, however. That, in fact, over the course of being thrown together in this incredibly grueling, intense, demanding experience, in which we spent four or five days every week in D.C., working in our skiff together, um, we came to trust each other, to respect each other, and to learn how to learn from each other in a way so that, to our own amazement, by the time we finished um, with these 46 recommendations, they were, in fact, unanimous. Um, and not unanimous in the sense of, well, I'll give you this one if you give me that one. Um, uh, but rather, we all talked them through to the point that we agreed on the conclusions that we reached as a group. And that was really a remarkable experience, because none of us would have imagined that to be possible when we began. Um, OK, so what was the, the process itself like? Um, so a lot of it was learning. A lot of it was both gathering information and also hearing perspectives from people who wanted our ear. And in some sense, this came as a bit of a surprise to me, particularly the latter part, because my sense was that, okay, it's just going to be another presidential commission. Nobody's going to care about it. Nothing's going to happen. We're going to spend a lot of time working, and it's going to mean nothing. But um, it turned out uh, a lot of the different constituencies were worried that we might actually, given that we had the president's ear, have some impact. And so we found very quickly that they were clamoring to, to meet with us, to put in their two cents. And the more groups and organizations did that, the more other groups got nervous about the fact, well, if they're talking to these guys, then we better be talking to them also. Um, and so we were very quickly overwhelmed with requests uh, for meetings with us. So what did that mean? So well, we met uh, in, a, in a variety of different settings and, and circumstances. Uh, with all of the different intelligence agencies on multiple occasions, NSA, CIA, FBI, said ODNI. Um, we also met with representatives of the Department of, of State, the um, Commerce Department, the Treasury Department. Um, we met with, uh, on, on multiple occasions, the National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, and other and Attorney General Holder, um, and other persons within the executive branch. We testified several times before the Senate Intelligence Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, the House Judiciary Committee. And those were not really testifying, not until, the, not until after we turned in a report. Before that, it was kind of funny, because the, they, the, the, the members of Congress were not used to this. They, they thought of them as hearings, 
where we would come in, and normally in a hearing, the witnesses come in and they answer questions. We came in and we said, what do you want us to know? And they said, well, we want to know what you think. We said, we can't tell you what we think. Right? We're in the process of figuring it out. So we're here to hear you tell us what you think we should think. Um, and that was a little disorienting to some of the members of, of, of Congress um, in, these, in these proceedings. But eventually they sort of got that. We also had many meetings with individual members of Congress, um, not in the public sessions, because they had uh, particular agendas uh, that they wanted to pursue with us. They had maybe um, uh, introduced a bill, and they wanted to lobby us in, in, in terms of the bill. Um, we met with a wide range of privacy groups, civil liberties groups. We met on several occasions with representatives of the European Union, um, and, uh, and so a lot of this was basically learning and listening and gathering information about a broad range of complicated statutory provisions and practices, almost all of which, in practice at least, were secret. Um, and so, so for me in particular, I have to say, this was a daunting challenge, more so even, I think, than the other four, because the other four all had had extensive experience in government recently, um, and I had not. Indeed, I'd never really worked in the government except when I was a law clerk. Um, so I discovered on the very first day that I didn't know anything. And it became particularly apparent uh, in, the, in the use of acronyms. Um, any of you who've worked in government know uh, that it's littered with acronyms. And nary a sentence was uttered in our initial meetings where somebody didn't say DARPA or NIST. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And, you know, somewhat um, with some, some sense of mortification, I sort of raised my hand and said, excuse me, you know, Dick, what does that mean? And uh, I decided I wasn't going to be able to live by just raising my hand all the time, so I had to, had to learn these things. So at the end of the first um, week, I had a list of 279 acronyms I'd never heard of before. Um, I was basically scribbling them down the whole time. And then, of course, I couldn't remember what people had explained to me when I asked them then, you know, live, so I then had to go Google them all and write down the definitions, and I had this long um, list of, of, of acronyms. And I remember sitting there that the first weekend after I got back from D.C. and started trying to memorize them. And after about six, I said, this is ridiculous. This is not going to happen. Um, but it just sort of it captures in a, in a, in a, in a microcosm um, the, the strangeness of being thrown into this world, um, which uh, for each of us was strange in different ways, but for me probably more strange than for anyone else. Um, the other reality of this process is because everything we were dealing with, or much of what we were dealing with, was classified, um, we could not do anything outside of a secure facility, which meant that even when I was in Chicago during these five months, um, I could not work on the report in any way, either from my home or from the office here, uh, because none of this is secure. And so I had a special secure facility in the FBI office here in Chicago, down on Roosevelt Road, where I would have to go and... Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays when I was in town in order to work on, on the report. Um, so it was a bit like being in a cave for five months. I mean, everything was consumed with this experience. And uh, it was fascinating, learned an enormous amount. It was exhausting for all of us. Um, but in the end, we produced this 300-page report. Um, and we wrote the report very self-consciously, uh, not a classified document, we intentionally wrote a document that would be available to the general public, um, and not a report to the president, which would not have to explain all sorts of background stuff, but we wanted to write a report that would be available to and accessible to the public. And in fact, Princeton University Press is going to publish it next month, um, but it's also available online. Uh, and it was, meant, it was written with the eye towards being read by people who were concerned about these issues, who wanted to understand them. And so on, on the one hand, we were talking to the president and to the Congress in our recommendations, but also writing it with the background um, that it was designed to put it all in, in a sense of context. Um, okay, so that's a bit of an insight into what the nature of this process was. Um, so let me, let me talk a bit about uh, substance. Uh, so we dealt with a great many issues in this, um, and the 46 recommendations actually understate the number of, of issues because the 46 recommendations, many of them have subparts, and so there may be, I don't know, I never counted, but probably 200 actual recommendations when you include all the subparts. Um, and they dealt with a broad range of, of issues dealing with, with questions far removed from anything you'd read about in the papers, because the newspapers and the American people aren't all that interested in some of these issues. Um, so what I think I'll, I'll talk about are the three, are three of the issues 
that we addressed um, that were taken up in one way or the other by the president in his speech um, and give you a sense of what those issues were and how we thought them through and what our recommendations were and, and what has happened thus far with respect to those recommendations. Um, so the, the, the program that Edward Snowden disclosed that has gotten the most attention in the United States is the Section 215 Telephony Metadata Program. So what is that? Um, a little background is necessary. Before 1978, the basic assumption was that when the government engaged in foreign intelligence surveillance, whether in the United States or abroad, it was entirely a matter within the discretion of the president as commander-in-chief. There was no legislative restriction on what the president could do, and there was no judicial involvement in anything the president did in the name of foreign intelligence surveillance. So if the president wanted to wiretap a phone call between people in the United States uh, on the basis of the fact that it was relevant to foreign intelligence, um, the president could do that without going to a court, without a probable cause, without a warrant, uh, without any oversight whatsoever outside the executive branch. Um, in the 1970s, um, serious grave abuses came to light in the activities of the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, Army Intelligence, um, during the years of, 19, of the 1960s and the 19, early 1970s, um, under the auspices of uh, J. Edgar Hoover and, and um, Linda Johnson and Richard Nixon, um, all of those agencies engaged in what was understood to be inappropriate and in some instances illegal uh, surveillance of American citizens um, uh, for a whole variety of purported reasons, but most of which were in one way or another political and certainly highly invasive of individuals' privacy and beyond the scope of authority of the various agencies. Um, and so Congress decided it needed to do something to rein this in, um, and the Church Committee, uh, named after um, Senator Frank Church, uh, was uh, uh, instituted to review all of these practices and policies and activities and to try to bring some kind of oversight and, and uh, limitation to what the executive branch was able to do. And the Church Committee report, which is really one of the truly great reports in the history of, of Congress, um, made a series of, of co complex recommendations which ultimately manifested in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. And that legislation did many things, but um, most importantly, it brought various elements of uh, foreign intelligence surveillance under the rule of law. And to do that, it created the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And the reason for the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was simple. Ordinary federal courts do not have security clearances. The judges, the, the law clerks, the secretaries, the messengers, the buildings, they're not designed to deal, they're not authorized to deal with classified information. Yet a great deal of foreign intelligence information is classified. Um, and therefore, you could not have an ordinary federal judge sitting here in Chicago deciding on whether the executive branch could do a foreign intelligence surveillance wiretap because you couldn't tell them anything. Um, so the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was created precisely for the purpose of enabling a group of judges to play that traditional role in overseeing what the executive branch did in the realm of foreign intelligence. And the court was, was, was authorized to deal with foreign intelligence surveillance that took place in the United States. What, what the president did outside the United States was regarded as beyond the scope of even Congress's business at that time. Um, okay, so the, the, the court was, was um, not a full-time permanent body of judges. What Congress decided to do was to appoint, um, on, a, on a rotating basis, uh, a series of judges who were ordinary federal judges, but who would have top-secret clearance, who would come several weeks a year each um, to Washington, D.C., to operate out of a, a SCIF, a, a secure facility, with a staff, all of whom had top-secret clearances, and they would then, during their rotations in D.C., they would be in charge of overseeing the actions of NSA and FBI and so on in the realm of foreign intelligence, and required for the first time that if, for example, any of those agencies wanted to engage in a wiretap within the United States, they had to have probable cause and a warrant, and the warrant had to be issued by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Um, and so from the late 1970s until 9-11, that process seemed to work reasonably well. And uh, for the most part, people 
thought that it, that it was, it was uh, effective. The church committee also created a broad range of oversight mechanisms to check the activities of the surveillance intelligence agencies. So the Senate Select Committee on, on Intelligence, the House Select Committee on Intelligence were both created. The Attorney General was given specific oversight um, responsibilities. So the idea was to avoid the kind of problems that had arisen in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and to make sure that even though these, these activities are secret, they nonetheless are, are being seen by the court, the executive branch, and the, and the, and the legislative branch um, to ensure that they act within the law. Um, okay, after 9-11, there was kind of a, obviously a wake-up call, and people said, well, okay, we're doing something wrong. Um, this should not have happened, and we need to think harder about the nature of the authorities that we have granted the intelligence agencies so as to give them a greater capacity to prevent these kinds of attacks in the future, um, particularly in a world in which it was believed that these sorts of attacks were going to happen in the future. And indeed, no one uh, after 9-11 would have imagined that we'd be sitting here in the year 2014 and that we would not have had additional large-scale uh, terrorist attacks in the United States in the intervening years. So the question was, how do you prevent that? What do you do to make that, um, uh, to, to make that not possible? And so Congress um, uh, made a number of modifications in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act in the wake of 9-11 designed to strengthen the ability of these agencies to ferret out uh, information about uh, the activities of terrorists in a world in which technology had already changed dramatically. Um, and the idea of wiretaps was kind of obsolete um, in, in the world of an Internet and, and so on. Um, so one of the provisions that was created was Section 215 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And what Section 215 did is authorize um, the NSA to go to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and get an order from the court based on reasonable and articulable suspicion that a particular target was an individual engaged in, um, to keep it simple, terrorist activity, international terrorist activity, um, and if they could demonstrate that to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the court would, could issue an order that empowered the NSA or the FBI to go to banks, credit card companies, telephone companies, internet companies, whatever, and serve the equivalent of a subpoena on them, demanding that they turn over records, phone records, credit card records, and so on, about particular individuals for whom there was reasonable grounds to believe that they were engaged in international terrorist activities. Um, and Section 215 itself, as I just described, it has worked quite well in the years since then. Um, but then in 2006, um, as technology changed, uh, the NSA came to the FISC, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and proposed a new program. Um, and the new program basically was designed to enable it to gather telephone metadata in theory, from all phone calls that took place in the United States, and to hold that data for a period of five years in a database. So what is metadata? Metadata are phone numbers. So it's every phone number, every number called by that phone number, and every number that calls that phone number. It's just numbers. It doesn't include any names. It doesn't include any geographical locations. It just includes phone records, right? Huge amounts of, of numbers. And the reason the NSA wanted that is because it now had the technological capability to manage a, a database of that magnitude in the following way. What the program proposed, in which the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court approved, and which the Senate and House Intelligence Committees approved, and the Attorney General approved, um, was that it was to enable the NSA, when it had reasonable and articulable suspicion that a particular telephone number, almost invariably a number outside the United States, was associated with a person suspected of terrorist activity, it could then query the database. That is, an analyst for the NSA could type in the phone number of the suspected terrorist, and what would be spit out is information about the, the numbers with whom that person, that number, was in contact. And the idea was to make the connections, was to connect the dots. Okay. And that was called the first hop. 
So let's say the average person in the course of a five-year period calls 100, is in, is in touch with 100 different numbers. Right? So what the NSA would do is type in the, the first number, which was the one where there was RAS, reasonable articulable suspicion, and they would, in theory, get a list of 100 numbers that was in touch with that person. They would then do a second hop. They would then do the same thing for each of those 100 numbers to see who they were in touch with. So if each of those people were in touch with 100 people, that would be 100 times 100 or 10,000. total of 10,000 numbers would be touched. Okay, now in fact, the program was much more carefully designed than that. What they actually got when they typed in the number was not the list of 100 numbers or the list of 10,000 numbers. They had already entered into the database all phone numbers that, to their knowledge, were independently suspected of belonging to people engaged in potential terrorist activity. And so what, what came out of the computer when they typed in the, the query was only phone numbers that independently had been determined to belong to people who might be involved in terrorist activities. So what they would then get is not 10,000 numbers, but many smaller numbers. So what, what's the actual scale of this? So first of all, in 2012, which is the last year for which we had full data, um, the NSA queried the database for 288 numbers. That is, there were 288 phone numbers in the world that they had uh, they suspected of engagement in terrorist activity um, and that they had access to these uh, to American phone systems. Um, those 288 uh, numbers yielded 16 tips. That is, 16 instances of those 288 did they come back with a number that was independently known to be someone suspected of terrorism in the United States. And basically, they then turned that over to the FBI. That's the tip part. And say, here's somebody in Pakistan calling somebody in Chicago. They're both people we suspect of having terrorist connections. Check it out. And the FBI would then do an investigation to determine whether or not there was anything to be concerned about from this, this connection. So it would either be a, a direct connection, that is, the person in Pakistan is calling the person in Chicago, or an indirect connection, the person in Pakistan is calling a person in New York about whom we know nothing, but that person is calling a suspected terrorist in, in Chicago. And in both instances, the, basically, the, the red lights would go on. Okay, so th that's basically the way the Section 215 metadata program works. A couple more observations about it. Um, first is that it, it turns out we only learned after we wrote a report that this sort of 100 times 100 no notion, which seemed logical, right, is, is way off factually. It turns out that in 2012, with 288 queries, only a total of 6,000 phone numbers were touched by the 288 queries. And of course, the reason for this, when you think about it, makes sense. Suspected terrorists in Pakistan don't call many people in the United States. <laughs> And the people they call don't call that many people. And so it's not 100 times 100. It's a much, much, much smaller number that you're multiplying. Um, I was actually shocked to learn this, that it was only 6,000. But once I learned it, I realized, of course, that makes perfect sense. Um, OK, so the metadata program, which has been the subject of great concern, okay, it is important to understand when it operates the way it is supposed to operate. Okay? It's been approved by the judges of the FISC by the Senate and House Intelligence Committees, by the Attorney General. Um, it can, it, they can only uh, access the, the metadata when two independent analysts in the NSA determine separately that there's reasonable articulable suspicion, and then when a supervisor independently looks at the evidence and determines there's reasonable articulable suspicion, and then they can query the database. Um, now, a couple of facts, uh, additional facts. First is that um, none of the... 16 tips in 2012 turned out to be particularly valuable. In the end, uh, after investigation, the FBI decided that none of them produced uh, information that was useful in preventing an actual terrorist attack. Um, the information had some value because for the 272 for which there was no connection, that meant that the, the, the government could worry less about them than they might otherwise, so that was of some value. But there was not a single instance in 2012 in which that data produced information that directly led to the prevention of a terrorist attack. Moreover, in the seven years in which the program has existed, there's not been an instance in which the data 
pr produced under the Section 215 metadata program has, in fact, led to the prevention of a terrorist attack. Now, I want to make clear, many other programs that are, that are employed by the NSA have had very productive results. But this particular program, it turns out, has actually not. Um, so another fact that's worth noting is that the public impression is that the NSA gathers every phone record of every one of you in this room, everyone in the city of Chicago, everyone in the state of Illinois, everyone in the United States. It turns out we learned from the NSA when we're meeting with them that that's not true, that they don't gather the whole denominator. They only gather a relatively small percentage of all of the phone records in the United States, um, only from a, a small subset of providers, of service providers, and even then with limitations. And we asked them why, because the logic of this is you'd want the whole shebang, right? You want to sweep in everything. And basically it was because of money. Essentially, they said that, well, it's costly. Uh, 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 maintaining this data is extremely costly. And therefore, we have to choose among different programs. And so this program is, is basically one in which we, um, it would be as if there are eight haystacks, and we're looking for the needles in the haystacks, and we're only looking in one haystack. And OK, that's better than not looking in any haystack, but it's a little odd that you're not looking in the other seven. But if it costs you a lot of money to look in the other seven, maybe it's better than nothing. Um, the other observation about this, with which, with which we became convinced, and in which they argued, I think, persuasively, is that it doesn't matter a whole lot that none of the results have yet turned up information that prevents a terrorist attack. We're not talking here about preventing the Boston Marathon bombing. Right? We're talking about preventing attacks on the scale of 9-11, nuclear attacks, massive chemical attacks, massive biological attacks, where the, the effects of those kinds of attacks could be extraordinary not only in terms of loss of life and economic consequences, but ultimately in terms of the loss of civil liberties. Because if you're confronted with those kinds of attacks, you're going to restrict everybody's civil liberties in all sorts of ways. And that, too, is a cost of not succeeding in this. And so their very basic argument is, look, you know, we may find only one in a decade. But when we do, that's really important. And if we didn't find it, it would be a disaster. And, and therefore, one has to understand the value of these programs, not by whether they they prevent a bunch of small attacks, but whether they actually work to prevent a huge attack. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but to the extent the program has logic um, behind it, 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 it does have that meaningful potential. Okay, so our evaluation of this program um, basically was, it's not nearly as draconian as the public has been led to believe. Um, it's much more carefully targeted and managed. Um, the actual harmful invasion of privacy, harmful invasion of privacy of individuals is um, e extremely moderated by the nature of the program and the way it operates. Um, but the value is not anything like what some of the other programs might be, and so it's not obviously that you, need, you critically need it. So we made three fundamental recommendations about this. First one we said is the government should not hold the database. NSA should not hold the database. Basically, one of the grave dangers that we've learned from our historical experience is that um, in the long run, there is always the risk that some um, misguided public official, whether a J. Edgar Hoover or Richard Nixon or whatever, will seek to use this extraordinary data to do harm, to, to gather information about, about free speech, about political associations, about one's political enemies, um, and that and that the metadata, although it's only phone numbers, that's all it is, if you actually look at the pattern of a person's phone numbers over an extended period of time, you can learn an awful lot about those people by figuring out who they've spoken to and what circumstances and when. Um, and therefore, one recommendation we made is that the data should not be held by the NSA or by the government. It should either remain in the hands of the service providers, the phone companies, which have it anyway for billing purposes, um, or if that proves to be too inefficient, um, then um, a, a separate independent private entity should be created um, that would be responsible for holding the data and monitoring the government's use of it and put essentially a third set of eyes on the use of the government uh, 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 of the data um, that would help to uh, uh, alleviate the risks of abuse. Second recommendation we made is that, that um, the NSA should not be able to query the database without a court order. Um, that uh, 
those who are engaged in the, in the enterprise of, of finding bad guys, human nature being what it is, are likely to err on the side, inevitably, of finding suspicion when somebody who's more neutral and detached might not, basically why we have search warrants. Um, and that our recommendation, therefore, was that uh, the NSA should not be allowed to query the database just on the basis of their own analysts making this determination, but that the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court should have to determine in each instance whether the reasonable articulable suspicion standard is met. And third, we recommended that the data, uh, to the extent it's still held, should not be held for more than two years. That five years is unnecessary, that the data gets stale, that its value depreciates with time, and that the risks of misuse of the data are greater the more data there is, um, and therefore we recommend that it not be kept for longer than, than two years. Um, okay, so the president on this score, um, when we first met with him to discuss this, uh, when we turned in our report in the middle of December, uh, the president was quite receptive to these recommendations and um, gave us the clear impression that he was inclined to accept these. Um, on, I think it was Wednesday, January 15th, I may not have my date right now, um, a month later, uh, we were to meet with Susan Rice and um, Kathy Rumler, the White House counsel, and Lisa Monaco, our graduate, who's the uh, legal advisor to national security, and several other people from the Justice Department um, in the Situation Room in the White House that afternoon to talk about the president's speech, which was going to be two days later. And that morning, to our consternation, we read in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Politico, or whatever, um, a leak from the White House that the president um, had decided uh, not to take the data away from the NSA and not to require a court order. And we were, frankly, pissed. Um, and so we went into the meeting that afternoon. Um, and since the president had told us to be independent, we were independent. Um, and we argued quite fiercely uh, that this was a mistake. It was a mistake both on the substance, in terms of sound policy. It was a mistake in terms of restoring public trust, which is one of the things the president had hammered about what he needed to do here. And it was a mistake politically for the president, which wasn't our business, but we couldn't help but note. Um, and, you know, whatever else transpired in the next 48 hours when the president gave a speech, he endorsed uh, all of our recommendations, um, which was uh, very nice. Now, what happens next depends on Congress, because this is not all stuff the president can do on his own, um, but that was gratifying. Okay, second thing I'll mention involves something called national security letters. So another thing that the government did after 9-11 was to authorize the Federal Bureau of Investigation to issue something called the National Security Letter when in the course of a national security investigation, it wants to obtain information like bank records, credit card records, telephone records, um, travel records, whatever, about a person who they suspect to be involved in some kind of a uh, national security um, activity. Um, by simply issuing the order itself to the, the bank or the credit card company or the phone company, whatever, and demanding they turn over the relevant information. X is bank records, X is credit card records, and so on. And NSLs have been controversial since they were created, partly because they are highly secret. Um, they're, the whole process is classified, because again, it's all national security investigation stuff. Um, and there have been abuses in the, in the use of NSLs, which have been reported to Congress and which have been brought to light uh, in the sense that the FBI agents who issued them, usually the special agent in charge of each office has the authority to issue them, um, had on many occasions issued them in circumstances which uh, were inappropriate. And although that's been addressed in various ways inside the government, um, it was a source of considerable um, concern. Our view is that there was no good reason why NSL should be issued by FBI agents uh, without a court order. And that, therefore, in, in the absence of a situation where time is, of, is so much of the essence that going to a judge for an order is a problem, uh, there should be a requirement that, that they get a court order. Now, the, the big obstacle to this, in our view, is that the, the FBI issues 20,000 NSLs a year. And it does not have, and there's no court that can handle that. They can't go to a regular court, because regular courts don't have uh, security clearances. So they have to go to the FISC. But the FISC, as it currently exists, is a relatively small body with basically one judge at a time uh, being there. And there's no way they could ha handle 
that many orders on a daily basis and give them anything like the attention that they require if the judges to do the job properly. Um, and so we recognize in the report that this, this will require um, an expansion in the number of judges on the FISC, uh, a significant expansion. Uh, but our judgment was this is worthwhile if we want to have a, a, a lawful system. Um, when we uh, discussed this with the FBI and with Jim Comey, um, uh, our graduate, uh, he was, not surprisingly, uh, adamantly opposed to this. Um, his view is that it was basically a pain in the neck, and it would be inefficient, and it would be inconvenient, and it would interfere with the, the expeditious use of NSLs, which the FBI needs. Um, and moreover, he said, uh, there's no reason why the government should be forced to jump through any more hoops when it's engaged in a terrorist investigation to protect the national security than it is when it's engaged, say, in a drug investigation. Because in a drug investigation, a prosecutor can issue a subpoena that does essentially exactly the same thing that an NSL does, and the prosecutor doesn't need to get judicial approval in advance. And so Comey's argument was, why would you want to stand things on their head and make it harder to protect the national security than to deal with drug investigations. Our response to that is that there's a big difference between the use of subpoenas and the use of NSLs. Subpoenas are largely transparent. Um, they are not classified. They're not secret. They are often at issue in criminal prosecutions when the government wants to introduce evidence. Um, and in any event, they're simply not secret. Uh, so if you, if you receive a subpoena, there may be some rare cases when you're required to be, for a period of time, silent about it, but basically they're relatively open, whereas the NSLs are completely classified. If you're a phone company or a bank that receives an NSL, you can't say anything to anybody about it forever, period. Criminal offense to say anything about it forever. Actually, it's 50 years, I think, um, not quite forever. Um, and our judgment was that's a serious problem because that, that lack of transparency invites the kind of abuse that you're concerned about. It invites the, the temptation to err on the side of finding reasonable or articulable suspicion when it doesn't exist. Because there's nobody who's going to be actually there to check you, whether it's right or not. And almost never is the NFL, NSL involved in a criminal prosecution, because that's not the purpose of them. It's to prevent things, not to punish things. Um, and, and so our argument was that the analogy to the subpoena is, is inapt, that the correct analogy is to Section 215, which requires a court order for the NSA to get basically the exact same information that the, that the FBI is getting without a court order under the NSL. Um, the president did not accept our recommendation on that. Um, in his speech, he basically endorsed uh, Comey's position on this. Uh, he did say that he wanted to uh, put in place certain restrictions on NSA, NSLs that would add to, the, to the, the transparency, but basically said a court order is not something that, that he deems um, necessary. We felt very strongly this was wrong. Um, uh, a third issue I'll mention, then I'll open to questions, involves the operations of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court itself. So the, the FISC, when it was created, was basically designed to issue search warrants. It was basically designed to deal with the situation which previously presidents had been allowed to authorize wiretaps without any judicial oversight or approval in advance. And the FISC was designed to say, to say no, you can't do that. You've got to go to these judges, and you've got to show probable cause, and the judge has to issue a warrant and then you can go do your foreign intelligence wiretap. Um, and so it was conceived of as essentially a, a search warrant court. And when search warrants are sought by the police, it's not an adversarial proceeding. There's no other side. The police officer goes to the, to the judge and says, here's what I know. I want a warrant to search the home or to tap the telephone or whatever. And the judge decides whether there's probable cause or not, issues or doesn't issue the warrant. And if he issues the warrant, the, the police officer goes off and does the search. And that's the way the FISC was uh, understood at the time. Um, but over the course of the 30-plus years since it's come into existence, it has, on some occasions, illustrated by the decision to allow the Section 215 metadata program, it has, on some occasions, addressed not just a probable cause question, but a fundamental, complicated, uh, far-reaching question of statutory and constitutional law. And our judgment was that when those situations arise, like any other court, it's imperative that the foreign intelligence surveillance judges have an opportunity to hear advocates for the other side. All they hear is the government lawyers coming in and saying, this is why you should approve this. And so we called for the creation of a, of a privacy and civil liberties advocate 
who would be available to represent the other side when these kinds of large issues arose. Not on ordinary probable cause decisions or, or reasonable and articulable suspicion decisions, but when these large issues of, of legal consequence come before the court. Um, and there's an interesting problem of how you structure this, because those issues don't arise all that often. They're relatively unusual. And so if you have a full-time person with doing nothing but this, they're going to be bored to tears. Um, and you're not going to get a very good person to do it. So the question is, how do you structure it so you have a person in this role, uh, but you want it to be a good person, but you want it to have other, th other things to do? And so we proposed a structure in which this person would, be, um, would work for the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board uh, and have other responsibilities, but would be independently also constantly monitoring the activities of the FISC and being able to intervene whenever he or she felt it was necessary to do so. The judges of the FISC objected to this. Uh, they basically said, you know, we're responsible judges. We don't really need to hear the other side. You know, we can figure out the other side all by ourselves. Um, and in any event, if we decide we do want um, somebody, then we should be able to go out and ask them to come in on a particular case, not have them have the authority to decide when to intervene. Um, the president basically compromised on this. He adopted the, the, the recommendation that there be a privacy and civil liberties advocate, um, but he adopted the, the judge's preference that it be someone who the, the FISC would invite in on particular occasions rather than have an independent ability to intervene when the, when the advocate thought it was necessary. So although we much prefer the other approach, um, this was 90% of victory. Um, the other issue about the FISC, which is worth noting, uh, when, and which is really in a, in a whole different way troubling, is one question that, it, that arose when it came time to create the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was who would appoint the judges, right? And the Church Committee and the Congress in the late 1970s, being acutely aware of, of, of Richard Nixon's uh, misdeeds and so on, did not want the president, who has politicized interests here, to be the one who appoints the judges, because he might appoint judges who are going to be highly inclined to be sympathetic to whatever it is he wants to do. And so after thinking about it for a while, they decided to put the, the power of appointment uh, in the Chief Justice of the United States. And so the idea was the Chief Justice would select the sitting federal judges who would sit for seven-year terms on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. Now, since, since the court came into existence, there have been three Chief Justices of the United States, Warren Berger, uh, William Rehnquist, and John Roberts, um, all three appointed by Republican presidents. Um, uh, Berger and Rehnquist exercised their power of appointment in what observers would conclude as a reasonable manner. That is, they appointed a reasonable distribution of judges from the lower federal court, um, largely without regard to who had appointed them in the first place. They were Democrats and they were Republicans. Um, since John Roberts has been Chief Justice, he's appointed now all 11 of the sitting Fisk judges. Ten of the 11 he appointed had, been, had initially been appointed to the federal bench by Republican presidents. And this, frankly, was scandalous um, it, in, in, across several dimensions. I mean, first of all, if you want the FISC to be representative of the overall federal judiciary, that means you take into account the, a diversity of federal judges um, on the court. Um, that just sort of goes without saying. Second, if you want the court to have credibility, you want it to represent different views on these issues and not pick only people who are law enforcement hawks. Um, and third, you would think that John Roberts would have the good sense to realize it's mortifying that he would do this. Simply as a matter of personal humiliation, you would think he wouldn't do this. Um, but he did. And, and this created great consternation. It's interesting. It's something nobody really noticed until people focused on it. Because um, the appointments were made one at a time and over a period of years, and nobody really was paying much attention to it. Uh, but once they did, this, this reality came to light. So we recommended that the appointment power, unfortunately, we recommended, should be taken away from the Chief Justice and should be distributed among the nine justices of the Supreme Court, each of whom would basically appoint a judge to the FISC from his or her circuit. So each justice is assigned responsibility for one of the 12 circuits, and they would each basically have uh, one appointment, which would simply be on a time-rotating schedule. Um, the president did not mention this in his speech, and my sense is that was perfectly sensible, because having brought this question to light, I can't imagine that Chief Justice Roberts will continue behaving in this manner. Um, and indeed, I'm told that the next nominee that he's about to put onto the court is, is someone who's been appointed by a Democratic president. 
um, although it's not, I don't think it's been announced yet. Um, and, and both he and subsequent chief justices, knowing what a fuss was now made over this, are likely to behave in a, in a responsible manner and avoid doing this kind of thing. So probably you don't really need to change the rule in order to get the, 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 the positive effect. Okay, let me stop at that point and uh, open the room for questions. Oh, come on, I'll call you if you don't, yes. First one, um, can you explain the NSA collection of metadata issue? I know you said that you, know, you learn a lot from looking at numbers. You know, looking at numbers, you learn a lot about people. So specifically, can you draw the line between protecting the pub public safety and the privacy rights of individuals? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the basic challenge that we defined for ourselves was to figure out how to enable the government to protect the national security in a way that as minimally as possible intrudes upon privacy and civil liberties. So much of our approach was to figure out how to fine tune, how to use le least restrictive methods, um, how to not undermine in a significant way, or in any way ideally, the ability of the government to protect the nation, while at the same time enhancing the protections of privacy and civil liberty. What happened after 9-11, quite naturally, given human nature, is that in a, in a mode of panic, government put in place a set of responses which erred very much on the side of national security rather than civil liberties and privacy because there was a sense of crisis. Um, and now that it's over a decade later, it's a good time to reassess that and to see whether you can fine-tune these things in a way that strikes a better balance. The other harder question, are, are there certain things that the government's doing that sh it shouldn't be doing at all? You can't fine tune it. You can't solve the problem by, by, by fine tuning it. It's, it's basically either you can do it or you can't do it. So an example of that would be the metadata program. Um, suppose, for instance, uh, one might say that the fact that the government is gathering this data is itself so problematic that it shouldn't be allowed. It's not about whether the government holds it or a private entity holds it. It's not about whether a court order is required or not. It just shouldn't be allowed to hold it, period. Now, the question then would be, I can pose two, two alternate universes. In one universe, the program's been in existence for seven years and it's not produced anything of value. And you might say, you know what, given the, the privacy intrusion or the potential abuse of the data, it's not worth it. We should get rid of it. It doesn't prove productive. Alternative world, three times in the last seven years, the program has enabled the government to thwart major terrorist attacks, which would not have been thwarted otherwise. Right? That changes the equation. Right? So sometimes you can solve the problem or, mit or mitigate the problem by, by fine-tuning. Other times you have to make a much harder up or down question, um, which is, is this worth the risk to privacy or not? And... Um, I would assume that if you, could, if you could show that this program had, in fact, enabled the government to prevent three major attacks on the United States that would not otherwise have been prevented, um, that would substantially shift uh, one's perception on whether the program is one that sh one should have or not have. I should add, by the way, just to be clear, that we were not charged with making legal evaluations. Several of us were not lawyers. Um, our charge, as put to us by the president, uh, was... Assuming that these programs are legal, should we do them? Right? So not to, not to ask ourselves, do we think they're legal or not? So that was not a question we touched upon in our report at all. Um, those of us who were lawyers inevitably had our own views on these questions, um, but it wasn't part of the charge that we had. The question was rather, assuming they're legal, should we do them? Um, and so the answer, I think, is you have to take these factors into account. And the first thing you try to do is minimize, and the second thing you try to do is you have to ask the question point blank, is it worth it or not? I was wondering how your experience informed your opinion about how to deal with whistleblowers within the intelligence community, in particular someone like Snowden, who you know, may have revealed probably too much, but maybe if he didn't reveal it, he wouldn't have been able to make the improvements you recommended. So, okay, so we did not deal with that at all. I mean, that is, Snowden was not on our charge. We did deal, we had a whole bunch of recommendations that deal with the question of, in, uh, of, pr pr of protecting against internal threats, which means both Snowdens and external uh, people who are trying to get information from classified sources. Um, so the premise was the president wanted their advice on how we can um, improve the security 
of, of, of these circumstances, but not to make a judgment about whether leaks are good or bad. Um, so my own view about that with respect to a leaker like Snowden um, is, first of all, there's no doubt that there is a positive value in the fact that we're having this conversation and that these are programs that are complicated. They, um, uh, it, it may be that they should be modified in various ways um, and that public debate and discussion of them and bringing in the perspective of outsiders has been uh, constructive. And I think most people believe that who's been involved in the process, even those who've been on the inside and knew about the programs before, believe that this has been salutary. Um, on the other hand, there are a, a, a several different types of costs to these sorts of leaks that one has to take seriously. One of them is simply the cost and benefit of the leak itself viewed narrowly. So let's focus for the moment only on Snowden's leak of the existence of the Section 215 metadata program. Okay? On that program, it's clear there's been public benefit in the sense that we might change those programs in a, in a way that is helpful. The cost with respect to that disclosure, however, is that its revelation will in all likelihood seriously impair the effectiveness of the program. Right? So that in 2012, there were 288 suspected terrorists who called into the United States in circumstances in which we were able to monitor the, the connections that they made. Presumably, knowing now about the existence of the program, uh, many fewer terrorists will do that. They will use burner phones. They'll go, buy, go to Walgreens, buy a phone, make the phone call, throw it out, put the phone out, and there's no way to track it, right, instead of using a, a registered phone to them. So it'll be interesting to see, at the end of 2014, how many queries there are. Right? Under one theory, it might go from 288 to 12. Right? And that's a cost. That has basically um, eliminated the value of a program. Now, here you can imagine two scenarios again. One scenario is the program is really not very important. The other is, it's, it is it has been essential to thwart three major terrorist attacks. Snowden didn't know anything about that. He had no knowledge or information about the effectiveness of the program. Um, and so he was basically deciding that he was going to reveal this information, right, without having any knowledge about how, how much of a negative effect it would have on the effectiveness of the program or how important the program was to protect the national security. So how do you assess that in deciding whether it's a good leak or a bad leak? Many of Snowden's leaks are, are, are far less sympathetic than the 215 leak. The vast majority of them leak programs, leak the existence of programs and activities that are really no particular interest to the American people. You don't even know about them. The media hasn't covered them. Uh, but they're of great interest to people around the world um, because it involves the government gathering information about people in Pakistan or Afghanistan or Russia or China or whatever in circumstances that pissed them off. And that's produced a, a whole lot of consequences for the United States, uh, both in terms of um, angering other countries, in terms of other countries or citizens of other countries taking steps to... Um, obviate the use of those programs and to avoid the use of those programs. Um, and some of those programs, unlike Section 215, are really important and, and have demonstrated that they've, they've enabled the government to thwart uh, many potential terrorist threats, both in the United States and around the world. So if you look at the larger picture, it seems to me that however sympathetic Snowden might be in disclosing 215, in disclosing the whole uh, array of things he's disclosed, the balance is pretty hard to, to strike. So one might say, maybe Snowden shouldn't be punished for G15, but he should be punished for the rest of it. Right? If you kill six people, it doesn't matter that one of them was in self-defense. Right? Um, the, um, the other problem, though, it goes beyond that, is, is that one thing I'm certain of is I don't want individuals with access to classified information, mid-level employees or contractors, to think it's okay for them to decide on their own what is in the best interest of the United States, when they disagree with the judges of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the President, the Attorney General, the Senate Intelligence Committee, the House Intelligence Committee, all of whom have approved these programs. Now, they may be wrong, right? But I don't like the thought that a single, you know, 25-year-old who has access to this information thinks it's okay to make the judgment himself that the national interest is better served by my revealing things than state of affairs. It's a very difficult problem because sometimes he may be right, right. But I don't think you want a situation where that person thinks it's going to be okay to do that. 
So my own view is I, I, I think that if Snowden were to be tried, he should be convicted, um, even though I recognize what he did had a certain value. To what extent did your work touch on how private companies like Google or Microsoft or Facebook should respond to a request by the government for private information? And what, what's your sense of what recommendations did you have along that front? Well, they're certainly free, of course, to challenge the legality of requests for information. And on, on a few occasions, they have. Um, on, on a few occasions, when uh, um, uh, telephone service providers received orders under Section 215, um, they objected and basically filed a petition with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, objecting to the legality of the orders. Um, the court disagreed with them, but they were free to do that. And any of these entities is always free, a bank, a credit card company, Google, they're always free to, to object to the legality of, of something. Uh, most of the time they don't, even if they, they don't like it, because most of the time their objection isn't legal. It's, they don't want to be bothered with it, and they don't, they, want it, they don't want it to be seen as incomplicit with the government at the expense of the privacy of their customers. Um, so for the most part, they, 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 they would much prefer not to have it known, and they can't challenge it so easily that way. Um, but they're, they're legally free to challenge it. They have to do it within the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, not in a regular court, for obvious reasons, when it's a classified program. Um, so, yeah, they, basically the answer is they can challenge it. And they have strongly objected, by the way, to some of these programs, um, now that they've been brought to light. I mean, before they couldn't bring them to light, so they couldn't object. Um, but now that they've been brought to light, the, the, the service providers, the telephone service providers, do not want to be involved in this whole 215 business. Um, they think it impairs their relationship with their customers. And, 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 and Google and Microsoft and Yahoo and so on, all of whom met with us for this purpose, um, at the very least, they want to be able to disclose general numbers about how often they're asked to do this. And the reason they want this, interestingly, is because it's small. Right? So what they're worried about is people believe that the NSA is sweeping up everybody's emails and all their internet searches, and gathering it all in a huge database, and reading the contents. And then they won't use Google. They won't be afraid to use Gmail. They'll go to some other, something else maybe. Um, and so this, this is what terrifies them. So the interesting thing about what their position is they want to be able, on a regular basis, to report the number of inquiries that they get. And the reason they want to do that is to, is to calm people and say, hey, it's not really that big a deal. It's not, they're not sweeping up everything. Right? So the 288 inquiries, for example, is, is, is usually different than what m many people might have thought was going on when they first learned about these programs. So that's their primary interest. And they, and they have a very strong business interest in this overseas because some of the other programs, which we haven't talked about, um, which involve the, the government of, obtaining email content and phone call content of non-U.S. persons who are outside the United States when they are suspected of engaging in terrorism, so in the United States, you couldn't do that without probable cause and a warrant. Outside the United States, if you're targeting a non-U.S. person who's outside the United States, you can intercept the phone call or the email if you have reasonable grounds to believe they're a terrorist and you don't need a warrant. Um, that has led to a sense of they're reading all of our emails, they're listening to all of our phone calls. That's not true either. But it's a lot more of them than it is in the United States because the standards are different. And, and for people like Google, this is a problem because, again, they, they're worried that other countries will begin to say, what, as China has said, you know, Google can't operate in our country anymore in a free way. Right? We're going to have to put all sorts of constraints on it, which will be bad for Google's business and also bad, by the way, for the, the globalized Internet. So there, there are important economic considerations that arise here. Yeah, so the data has been presented, which the, the FISC reports to Congress, um, and which is public, about uh, the percentage of requests for court orders that it grants when the FBI or the NSA seek an order. And it's, it's, it's like 99%. And that was treated as they obviously aren't doing their job. They're just rubber stamping every request. And Judge Reggie Walton, who had been chief judge of the FISC, wrote a, a very detailed um, letter uh, that explained that, and we met with him and others and talked about this, and, and we're quite convinced, in fact, 
by this, that several things contribute to this. One of them is that the Justice Department lawyers, who are the ones who seek all these orders, right, are highly professional and very much concerned about their own credibility and integrity. And they know that if they present something to the judges of the fist that's not persuasive, that they're going to get a bad name. And so they themselves are internally very careful about this. And just DOJ lawyers are, are generally excellent about these things. Number, that's number one. Number two is the numbers don't include all of the cases in which the judges say, this isn't good enough. Right? I'm not prepared to rule on this. If you want to come back with more information, fine. Sometimes they do come back with more information and fix it. Other times they just drop it. And those don't show up in the numbers. Because the only thing that shows up in the numbers are the cases in which they actually deny the request for the warrant. In a, in a final sense. So Walton's explanation is, is those numbers are actually quite misleading. I would still be skeptical about this myself, but for the fact that there were a number of instances in which judges on, on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court had to deal with noncompliance issues. That is, there were a couple of instances where the NSA discovered that in implementing some of its programs, including on a couple of occasions Section 215, um, that it was not actually doing it to the letter of the law, that it had screwed up. And part of this was because you have analysts who are tech people applying legal concepts, and they don't always translate back and forth very easily. And so the NSA discovered itself that these noncompliance issues were occurring. They brought it to the attention of the FISC, and the judges on the FISC went nuts. I mean, they were livid. And they basically put the NSA into receivership while the problems were all being fixed. And if you read those opinions, you really do come away with the sense that these judges are, are very serious about what they're doing. So that, that, I must say, gave me a good deal of, of confidence that they're not rubber stamping, in fact. Um, and I don't know what the percentage, I, I asked a, a, a former student of mine who's a judge, what percentage of requests for search warrants get, get turned down. And she said it's very small, even in the ordinary world, uh, that for the most part, the same phenomenon occur. Uh, the people who want them are careful about, about presenting adequate evidence. When you don't, you don't just say no, you say you want to come back, and then they just don't have to come back again. And it doesn't show up as a denial. Okay, thank you very much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.